Well, good morning. It always takes two. It always takes two asks. Good morning. There we go. There we go. That's what I like to hear. I know, I know. You guys are tired of the youth group thing, but I'm going to keep doing it. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 16 this morning. Luke chapter 16. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Um, This Sunday is our last Sunday in the lectionary before we start our storied season. Okay, I was hoping for more of a reaction. I'm going to be real with you. Before we start our storied season... All right, yeah, there we go. I am super excited about this. Um, But today, we are in another complicated, confusing passage. We're actually in a story where it almost seems like Jesus tells us to embezzle money. It's kind of a complicated story. I'm just going to be real with you guys. Um, But as we prepare today, there was something that I just kind of felt like I should share. This is not part of the sermon, but I think it's, it's an important idea to keep in mind as we hear from the Word of God every week. And it's that sermons don't stand alone. They stand within the witness of Scripture and the life of a church. So one sermon is taken in the context of everything that's preached and everything that's taught. That's not to say if you miss a Sunday, you're missing the whole story or the big picture, but that's to say that when we talk about something like we're going to talk about today, it could be easy and it could be tempting to hear it and say, oh, well, this is a principle that I can apply to my life and fix everything. That's not how sermons work. Scripture falls within the witness of itself, and there are principles. We might think of them as guideposts along the way that that God uses to keep us on path and keep us in the way, walking in the way of Jesus. Um, But there's not not a one-size-fits-all magic key that we can gain from Scripture that just fixes every problem in life. Sermons teachings stand within the life of the church and within the witness of scripture. They are a collective thing in which we, as a community, return to hear from the word and to be formed by the word of God consistently. Does that make sense? So one of the primary um, repercussions of that is this, is that this, me preaching or someone preaching on a Sunday morning, is an addition to a life drenched in the word of God. It's, It's not... Sunday mornings are not an antidote to the problems of the world. They are an addition to empower us as we walk in the way of Jesus daily. Make sense? I just felt like I should share that. That's not really have to do with what we're talking about this morning, but I felt like I should. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. We're picking up really right where Jack left off last week, which Jack did such a killer job last week. He set us up perfectly for where we're going today. In chapter 16, verse 1, it says this. Jesus told his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. And he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, 
Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's pray. God, once again, we approach a complicated story, but we are here to hear from you and to be formed by you, your word. So God, I ask that you would give us hearts that are aligned with your spirit to be able to respond, that anything that's not from you would be revealed so it can be rejected, but what is from you would be embraced so that we can walk in a deeper intimacy with you. We're here for you. Jesus is the only name that matters this morning. So let it be the only name that we care about, the only name we remember when we leave. We love you. Amen. <coughs> now, some of you probably know this. I was a youth pastor for about six years. That doesn't sound that long in, like, career years, but if you were to measure it in time spent in a 15-passenger van, <coughs> it's like dog years. It just multiplies. It's like a lifetime at that point. A, a while back, I, I started actually doing the math like calculating the hours of my life that I have spent in a 12 or 15 passenger van. And when I got to weeks, I quit because I just got sad. (laughs) Like I'm never going to get that time back. I have spent maybe a month of my life in a 15 passenger van full of teenagers driving them around. But one specific instance of that that I will probably always remember is back in, I think, 2015. My wife was seven months pregnant with our son, Josiah, and we were driving. We lived in Michigan. And it was December, and we were driving a group of teenagers late December to this huge youth conference in Indianapolis. So we had like a five-hour drive at the end of December with a 15-passenger van packed with teenagers who do not care. What do they not care about? They don't care. They don't care about anything. Um, And I know around here, we live in South Carolina, right? If it's a little bit damp outside and below 40 degrees, everything shuts down and we buy all the bread. (laughs) In Michigan... If you can still see the road, like, and I mean from your eyes, like if it's not a total whiteout, then everything keeps going, right? So there was a, basically an ice blizzard that happened in Michigan, pretty much the whole Midwest, and the conference was still on. So we just, you know, we just roll the dice and go down there. Um, So I am driving a 15-passenger van with just the roads covered in slushy ice, for five hours, it turned into more like seven hours, with a van packed full of 15-year-olds who do not care, and my wife who was seven months pregnant. If you want to talk about stress, like if you would have measured my blood pressure during that time, like they would have thought I was dead probably. Like, I mean, I was so stressed out. You're just driving 25 miles an hour on the interstate. I think I said, shut up, so many times on that trip, like so many times. Um, But what's interesting about that story is not so much that we drove through a blizzard, because honestly, that happened all the time in Michigan. What was more interesting was that a couple of weeks before that trip, we had taken the church van in and gotten new tires. 
a couple weeks after that trip, we had to take the church van back to the Firestone to get something checked, and we, we drive it up, and they come out, and they look at the, tr- at the van. They look a little worried, look back at the van, and they're like, do we put those tires on? Yeah, you put those tires on. You never want to see people look worried when they look at your car. <laughs> so they went inside, and they're like, we'll be right back. And I was like, this is not going to be good. So they come back out, and they're like, we put those tires on. Yes, you put those tires on. Okay. Well, we put the wrong size tires on your church van. And we're like, well, what does that mean? Well, it means like those tires were designed for like a midsize SUV. But we put them on a church van. So basically they put tires that were pressure rated for a Subaru Outback. And they put it on a 15-passenger van that we packed full of teenagers and drove through a blizzard. And we're like, okay, well, obviously that needs to be fixed, but what's, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, a tire's a tire, right? Like, I, I mean, I, I work on my car a little bit. I'm not like a mechanic, but I'm a little bit handy when it comes to cars. I looked at the tires. The tires looked fine. They looked like tires to me. You know, there was no obvious thing that was wrong here. And so and I'm like, what, what, what could go wrong? And they say, well, they could explode at any time. <laughs> I'm like, is that all? <laughs> They could just, we were driving through a blizzard with, with a bunch of teenagers and a pregnant wife, and they could have just exploded just in the middle of the drive. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, it can happen because they're not rated for the pressure, right? The, it's too much weight. They can't handle it. So they might last forever, but they might pop at any given time. Now, I'm going to connect some dots real quick. This is a cheesy analogy. This is not a clever introduction. You're going to see where this is going, and that's okay, because sometimes it just needs to be obvious. The tires weren't rated for the pressure. They can't sustainably or consistently handle the pressure of being used in that scenario. Now, you couldn't look at it and tell the difference. You would have to know something to know that they couldn't handle the pressure. And you might drive them for a year and not have any problems, or you might drive them for an hour and be stranded on the side of the road because the tires can't handle the pressure. And what I want to tell you this morning is that there are things in our lives in which we build our lives on, in which we drive our lives on, that can't handle the pressure. They were not designed to bear up to the weight of human existence. So we might drive on them for a day. We might drive on them for a few years. But they cannot be trusted to handle the pressure consistently. The blowout might come tomorrow. It might come next year. But it's coming. Now, I don't tell you that to scare you. I don't think God, like, dangles us over fear to motivate us to do things. Every once in a while, God will rescue us to save us if he has to do that, and fear might be part of his avenue, but fear is not a healthy, consistent motivation. We preached about that like a month ago. You can go back and listen to that. Fear is not a healthy motivation. God doesn't motivate us consistently with fear. So I want to calibrate this. There are millions of people all over the world who are living lives built on things that will not sustain the pressure of human existence, Christians and non-Christians all over the world. Some of us are just, some of us have just gotten lucky. We've been doing it for years and nothing, we haven't hit the pothole that's going to blow the tire yet. And some of us, we are, we're just looking at the people around us and we're saying, listen, I know it happens to people all the time, but it's probably not going to happen to me. So, you know, I'm just going to roll the dice. 
But most of us, I, I think, this is just kind of an educated guess, most of us, I think, our, our reality is not so much that we don't know or that we don't believe or that we're just rolling the dice, but it's that we're going through life and we keep experiencing blowouts, if you will. We keep experiencing like mechanical failures of the things that we've built our lives on, but we don't really know what the problem is, so we just, once again, I'm really leaning on this analogy, we just change the tire. We just put another tire back on, and we keep doing the same thing. We keep pursuing the same things. We keep, chase, keep chasing the same things in life because we haven't really evaluated. We can't really tell. It's not super obvious. There are people driving on these t- There are people building their life on these things everywhere. Nothing stands out as being wrong here. So even though we consistently have these failures and shortcomings, we just replace the tire, put another of the same thing on, and hope it works better this time. But there are things in life that we build our lives on that cannot sustain the pressure. They were never designed to. The hope, though, is that if there are things that were not designed to, there are things that were. And I'm going to say this at the beginning. We talk about this a lot at the fold. When we talk about the fact that a life of alignment with Jesus can hold the pressure of life, We are not saying that there is no suffering and that there is no potholes in the road, if you will. You cannot look at the life of Jesus and see him hanging on a cross and assume that his way is a way of comfort. Good and easy are not synonyms. But there is a difference between a life that can hold the pressure in the midst of the pain versus a life that can't. Now, this story, this parable, falls at an interesting time. Like we mentioned before, um, Jesus has been talking. Jack left us off in a perfect place last week. He actually mentioned something that I had never considered before. I thought it was brilliant. He talked about how in Luke 15, we've got the story of the prodigal son. Most of us are familiar with that. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin. And he mentioned that each one of these stories interacts with wealth, with finances, in in an interesting way. And And it shows us what Jesus, what the kingdom of God actually values in a way that might surprise us. And then the story tells us that Jesus is talking to his disciples. We find out later that there are other people around, but they're kind of auditing the class. They're sitting in on the class for the the day. But Luke emphasizes that Jesus is specifically talking to his disciples here in which he tells this story. And Luke is arranging these stories intentionally because he's telling us much about what the kingdom of God truly values. And then he tells this story that is just really weird. It tells a story about a manager. Now, before we actually get into the story, I think there's something that's worth noting. Maybe you don't do this, but I do this. When I read parables of Jesus and there's a character who's a boss or a master, I always assume that 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 is analogous to God. I always assume that if there's a master in the story, that the master is supposed to be God in the analogy. But that's not always true. Some of the parables, the master in the story is just the master in the story. So in this parable, the first thing we need to do to understand it is to see that the master in this parable is not analogous to God. This is a story about a manager and his boss, and the emphasis of the story is on the manager, not on the boss. So here's what it is. 
there's a guy whose primary responsibility is to manage the wealth of someone else. His job is to make sure the investments are turning a profit, that the farm is yielding, that all of the workings of the house are going in the favor of the master. And this would be probably a fairly prestigious position. It put him in prestigious places. He was handling much wealth. This was a white-collar job, not a blue-collar job. It was a job that would be associated with some pride and with some position. And he has this job, but we're told that he is squandering or wasting, depending on your translation, the wealth of his master. Now, it'd be easy for us to assume that what he's doing is embezzling. What he's doing is stealing. We don't really know that. The, the Greek word there is translated very well into the English here, um, and it really, it, it, it means wasting. It means using poorly. We don't really know exactly whether he was, he was embezzling. The message translates it as stealing. Some scholars think he was stealing. Some scholars think he was just bad at his job. We don't really know. What we know is that money was wasted, and his job has been called. He's getting fired. So this guy looks at his situation in life, And he says, you know what? I have a prestigious position. There is no way I'm going to beg. And I'm not strong enough. I don't have the calluses on my hands to dig. Now, here's something that's worth noting. Jesus goes out of his way to make us not like this manager. He paints him as a prideful person who is too prideful to do hard work, who wants to maintain his position and is not really concerned with the welfare of anyone else. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in the story. So this manager comes up with an idea. He realizes something. He realizes that the best thing for himself, the best way, the wisest thing he can do to defend himself and his own position is not to use his position to acquire wealth or acquire things for himself, but he realizes that because of this turn in his life, the best thing he can do to defend himself is to help somebody else. He realizes that actually the best thing he can do is to forgive some debts ease some pressure for other people, make life easier for other people so that when he loses his job, he can maintain his status and his goodwill in all of these houses. He figures out that wealth for himself is not actually going to help him in this moment. So then his master looks at him and his master says, that was really wise, that was really clever because you found a way looking out for yourself. You found a way to keep your positions Keep your status in life stable by helping other people. You figured out how to defend yourself when everything was falling apart. And then Jesus says the very confusing thing. He says, people of the world, people whose ethics are not aligned with the kingdom, people who aren't concerned with pursuing the things that we're pursuing, people who might be self-absorbed, they might have self-interest, they might not care at all about righteousness, they have something figured out at times that the people of God don't have figured out. They're better at dealing with wealth sometimes than the people of God are. And then he says, and this is where it gets confusing, he says, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself. So that when it fails, you will have an eternal, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now here's what I want to offer to you this morning. 
I think what Jesus is saying is that, that there are times where people who are not interested, who do not know the way of Jesus, who maybe not, might not even be interested in the way of Jesus, who aren't even interested in sacrifice or generosity as a value system, they figure out principles of the kingdom of God that actually work quicker than we do. This shrewd, corrupt manager that Jesus goes out of his way to paint as an unlikable character figures out something. And what he figures out is that wealth, money, resources, things, all of these would be broadly contained into the word or a variation of the word mammon, which is translated money here in this story that means money, but that has just the implications of wealth and is often given spiritual implications as well. What this shrewd manager figures out is that wealth cannot maintain the pressures of life, but that there is a wisdom in a different way. Now, the one guarantee to offend everybody on a Sunday morning is to talk about money, right? Nobody likes to talk about money in the church. For real, I don't like to talk about money in the church. Honestly, it's like my least favorite thing to preach about. But here's the truth. Money is all over the Bible. It is one of the most common things talked about in Scripture. It is everywhere. It's in almost every book. It's consistent. Jesus talks about it all the time. It's, it's all over Scripture. And it would be easy, especially as millennials. This isn't true of all millennials, but for a lot of us, we like to talk about money because we like to paint money as a bad thing. Like, oh, yeah, the corrupt. Hashtag eat the rich. Like, we, we want to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we like to think of money as a bad thing. And it's easy for us to harp on the scriptures where God calls the rich corrupt and he, talk, and, he, and he talks about the hollowness of wealth and resources. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't actually consistently talk about wealth as a bad thing. The Bible talks about wealth as a good thing, but a dangerous thing. The Bible talks about wealth as something that can be used for good, but something that can easily entrap us into bad. And it's all through scripture because the, the simple reality is it's all through our lives. It's something we are consistently going to have to deal with. It's a reality of human existence that we interact with wealth on a regular basis. No matter how much of it you have or how much of it you don't have, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, wealth is something we don't really like to talk about because it's part of all of our lives. And honestly, a lot of us are kind of uncomfortable with our relationship to it in one form or another. It's a touchy thing to talk about. It's all through scripture, though. And it's not necessarily painted as an evil thing. In fact, I would offer that what Jesus is saying is that that money is actually a very good tool. It's just a very bad master. It's a very good tool. It's just a very bad master. Do you hear what Jesus says? He says, use worldly wealth. Use the things that are a reality of your life to make friends. Build things with it. But, But the thing about tools is that you don't collect them just to have them. Right? You don't have a bunch of hammers because you like hammers. You have a hammer because you need to build something. That, that it's valuable because of the purpose that's being accomplished through it. So Jesus makes it clear that money is a good tool that oftentimes people of the world figure out how to use. And they figure out how to use it in a way that helps other people, even if they're doing it with selfish motivation. And they actually figure out that when you help other people, you, help your, you actually figure out that forgiveness and generosity are part of the fabric of reality created through the image of God, created through the goodness of God that's in the world around us, that generosity is actually more powerful than greed. 
Generosity is actually better for you than greed. And sometimes people figure that out. Why? Because money is a tool. It's just a bad master. Now, this is where it gets tricky, though, because none of us think we're mastered by money. None of us do. I mean, we've all seen the movie. Like, we've seen Beauty and the Beast. We've seen The Christmas Carol. We've seen every Hallmark movie that they will make between now and Christmas where there's some lonely curmudgeon billionaire who... <laughs> He's handsome and wears nice suits, but he's cold and distant. And some girl from a small town who has a, who has a scarf shop falls in love with him and teaches that, te- teaches that, you know, that relationships are what matters and money what isn't. And then he buys a golden retriever and they live happy ever after. Like, we've seen the story. We know the story, right? We all know. If I were to tell you that money isn't a good thing to build your life on, every single one of us would agree with that. If I were to tell you that money is hollow and it can't provide you meaning, if I were to tell you that what you own cannot provide any meaning for you in your life, you would agree with that. Because we all know the story. We all know the story, but knowing the story doesn't really change anything. Because there's a reason why they have to keep making the story, and every time they make the same movie with a different main character, we're like, wow, I've never thought of that. (laughs) Because it doesn't matter how many times we know the story, we have a tendency to evaluate ourselves not against is money a master or a tool, but against the villain and the most extreme characters. So we look at the stories and we say, well, I'm not Scrooge. I'm not Scrooge McDuck swimming in a room full of coins. I'm not harming anyone by my use of money. I'm not actively taking advantage of the poor. I'm not doing that. I'm clearly, clearly I am not mastered by money. Clearly I'm mastered by something else. Clearly everything is fine for me because we evaluate ourselves against the extremes. And the word master is just not a word that we really like. It's not a word that we can interact with very well. It seems like, you know, we're reporting or, or some sort of formal relationship. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you this morning a working definition of being mastered by something. This is not an exhaustive definition. It's a working definition. We could spend a long time about what it means to live under the lordship of something, but I think this is a good evaluative tool. If a thing is the driver for the majority of your big decisions in life, then it has mastery in your life. If the majority of the big decisions you are making can be evaluated based on one thing, then that one thing holds sway. So if we find ourselves looking at our life and deciding who we're going to spend time with, or what neighborhoods we're going to move into, or what jobs we're going to take, primarily based on money, things, and resources, then the driving force of our life is money. Now remember, money isn't a bad thing. I'm not telling you to say no to a raise out of some sort of piety. I'm not telling you to live in a neighborhood that you don't want to live into because you're angry at money or something like that. What I'm telling you is the driving forces of your life, the things that are motivating the majority of your decisions are telling you what has mastery in your life. And if that is wealth, then we are likely not mastered by Jesus as much as we are mammon, money, things. 
honestly, as I was studying for this, I had to do some serious evaluation. Why am I making decisions? What, what's driving me? Why do I care about what I'm wearing or where I live or anything? Like, what, what, what's, the, what's the motivation here? Am I motivated by, by just acquiring things? Because there's a lot of fear associated with this. There's, there's a sense of security in resources and things. There's a sense of safety in those things. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. He's telling us that, that it cannot hold up the pressure of life. He's telling us that there absolutely is no guarantee. Listen, everybody's been preaching these sermons for the last 2,000 years. We all know you can't trust the stock market, and you can't trust the housing market, and you can't trust money, and it could all be taken away in a day. And we've all heard those, so we hear those sermons, and we're like, ah, why are they saying that again? Because it's true. It can't sustain the pressures of life. It cannot sustain the pressures of human existence. And that doesn't mean that it's going to fall apart and you're going to wind up impoverished, what it means is that it's hollow and it will not provide the things you're looking for. It cannot provide the things that you're trying to accomplish or acquire through wealth, through resources. That's why it's so beautiful that Jesus points to a different thing. Do you see Jesus pointing to a different way of life? He does something very intentional in this story to contrast because the shrewd manager was using wealth to gain access to physical homes. He was trying to create space for himself so that he would be taken care of. But Jesus intentionally contrasts that. He says, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it fails or if it fails, because Jesus enters into the story, the inevitability of it falling short so that you will be welcomed into something eternal. Jesus is contrasting. He's saying there's actually something significantly bigger going on here that you can be building for. There's actually something significantly better here that you can be building for. The kingdom of God is where you are going to find the things that you're longing for. And you can use your money to build a kingdom for self, or you can use your money to be an outpost for the kingdom of God, giving people a mirror and a window and and an access and a picture of what the kingdom of God is actually like. You can build for the kingdom with what you have, or you can build for yourself. And one of those will last and one of them won't. And see, this is the beautiful thing about this story is that we're talking about wisdom here. Wisdom is a theme throughout scripture. Wisdom is a theme in the Old Testament. The book of Job has an intermission in chapter 28 that revolves around wisdom. It's sometimes called the soliloquy of wisdom. We've got wisdom books and wisdom literature in the Bible. And one of the things that we're told through scripture and theology is that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Because God doesn't ask us to live anything. He doesn't live himself. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, Have the same mindset among yourselves as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, who having everything he needed and could ever want, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage, but rather lowered himself becoming a man, but not just a man, a servant, and subjecting himself to death, but not just death, death on a cross, so that God exalted him, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Christ is Lord, 
See, God has actually modeled this example for us, that there is something more important, that money and wealth and resources are wonderful things, but they are a tool. And the thing that matters is the relationship. The thing that matters is the relationship. God did not consider everything he had something to be used for himself, but rather used everything he had for the sake of others to reconcile us to God. Because the only thing that can actually live up to the pressure of life is being reconciled to God and living in his kingdom, being reconciled to God and practicing his way. That is a life that can live up to the pressure. And I told you earlier, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Easy and good are not synonyms. But Jesus is a good teacher and he is a good master. And the pressures of life can be held and managed in him. His way is different. His value system is different. And when you see the beauty of Jesus reconciling you to God, then you see the frivolous nature of the things of this world that they cannot last, so they should be used for things that do. They should be used for things that do. The beautiful things, the good things. God doesn't mock our needs. God doesn't doesn't denigrate uh, finances. God doesn't mock or condemn those things. He's, he understands that there are things we need. Jesus ate a lot of really nice meals in some really nice houses. Jesus understood the beauty and goodness of life, but he also understood the danger and the chokehold of greed. And he also understood that greed isn't in the stereotypes, but that the line of greed runs through all of our hearts as we are tempted to build a life for ourselves on the things of this world instead of trusting the life Jesus has built for us and invited us into. Jesus can hold the pressure. Jesus can hold the pressure. So here's how we're going to respond. We're not going to do anything special or anything really different. I just want to offer some questions. Maybe you're here and you... You've been following Jesus for a while. You're familiar with the way of Jesus. But in this examination, if you were to ask, what's the driving force behind my decisions? The majority of my decisions, and you would say, you know what? The majority of my decisions are actually driven by wealth or by things. You don't have to be rich or have a lot of money to be driven by it, just for the record. The majority of my decisions are being driven by what I can build for myself in this life. And I I think I'm ready to begin trusting Jesus as master of everything. This isn't a decision you can make once. The decision to put our faith in Jesus, the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cover sins, all of them past, present, and future. But the decision to let Jesus master, to let Jesus be master of our lives, is a decision we make every day, honestly. It's a decision that sometimes when there's a new thing that comes up in our life that we don't want to surrender, we make that decision again. (laughs) And then sometimes that decision's hard. Sometimes we have to deeply wrestle with that decision. Sometimes it can take us weeks to make that decision. But maybe you're here today and you're you're just realizing, you know what, I have been primarily driven by things and I'm ready to begin aligning my life, letting the primary decision maker in my life be the way of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the voice of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, not what I can get. Maybe you're here today and this is just an encouragement. Maybe you're here today, and honestly, as you've prayed and you've evaluated, you've realized, you know what? I actually have been letting my, my loyalty to Jesus be the primary decision maker in my life. And you, you will just hear the whisper of God saying, good job. I'm proud of you as we respond. That is, that's a perfectly valid response. Maybe you have been walking in intimacy with Jesus, and he has been the primary. All of us find places we fall short. All of us have made decisions. But if you look at the pattern of your life and the pattern of your life right now, you know that 
Jesus is the, mo- the motivator. Everything is filtered through his lens. And maybe you're here today, and honestly, you're not sure if you believe in Jesus. You're not sure if you've believed in all of this. Maybe you're not sure that Jesus exists even. Or maybe you, like many of us, you know that Jesus exists. You know deep down inside that this is what's true, but you have just been resisting it for a long time, and you're starting to see how hollow a life you can build for yourself is, and you're ready to truly put your faith in Jesus and begin following him. That is an easy decision. I mean, it's a hard decision, but the door is open. It's a revolutionary decision, but the door is open. All it takes is saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you said you are. You are God. You died and rose again to pay the price for my sin and reconcile me to God. And I am forgiven because I have trusted it. And I choose to walk in your way. You can make that decision today. The subtext of this reality, and this is something I wrestled with even saying this, But as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I just felt like I needed to say this. This isn't something we talk about very often at the fold, but it is something we talk about every time it comes up in Scripture. And the subtext of this story, Jesus is talking about an eternal dwelling. He's talking about being reconciled to God. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And within that, there's the implication that the the decisions that we make are eternal decisions. You know, Hebrews says it is God's desire that none would perish. Every day that God is patient, that he does not come and make everything right, is a day he is extending the offer to one more person to choose to put their faith in him. And I'm not saying this to scare anybody. I do not believe in fear as a motivator to follow Jesus. But I am saying that the reality of the situation is that we choose. We choose a life and an eternal life with God or apart from God. We choose an eternal life with God, forgiven and redeemed and made right, or a life in which we receive the consequences of our sins for eternity. Words that are talked about like hell, listen, we can have a long conversation about the multiple and nuanced nature of the theology of hell, but what we know for sure is that the reality is that the decisions we make are eternal, but that we are invited in the eternal love of Jesus home over and over and over again, and as long as there is breath, the invitation is extended. And I would be remiss if I didn't extend that invitation this morning. There is a life that can handle the pressure. There is a life that can handle the pressure. It is the goodness of Jesus. It is the way of Jesus, proven in the death and resurrection of Jesus and offered to us for eternity. If any of those things, any of those places or questions resonate with you and you want to talk about it more, I would love, I would love to talk to you about that. You don't have to make that decision alone. You don't have to wrestle with that truth alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we thank you that you invite us into a better way. Jesus, we thank you that the offer of home and rest in you is continually extended to us. We thank you that your blood pays the price for our sins. God, we thank you that you do not ask us to do something that you have not modeled for us. We thank you that we see in your life and in who you are the beauty of the relationships, the beauty of your way. We thank you that you did not consider your wealth, your power, your things, your influence, your position to be used for yourself, but rather you showed us the wisdom of a better way in making the way for us to be reconciled to you. God, we thank you that you are patient with us, that every time we build a life on something else and it crumbles, 
you whisper to us that there's a better way. We thank you for your love and your mercy that is extended to us over and again. We love you, Jesus. Amen.